Hey everybody, this is Aaron, and welcome to the Good Line Podcast. I am coming to you not from my home office podcast studio, but actually from my cell phone. I am on the road. I am in Costa Mesa, California right now, currently serving alongside my team at CGN uh, for the Calvary Global Network International Pastors Conference, and we've got pastors and missionaries from all around the world coming to be blessed and encouraged and built up. And I'm just, I'm so blessed to be able to be a part of this team and serving in this way. Uh, but the the conference has really dominated my schedule for the last two weeks. And that's why, to my shame, because I'm a perfectionist when it comes to creative content, uh, there's been no new episodes of the show. Uh, we started this great little mini series on the negative world with Mike Doyle, and we recorded two more episodes and I have not been able to release them or finish them. And so uh, that's been discouraging. I realize that most people don't actually care when one of their favorite podcasts doesn't put out an episode every week. Um, People move on and they go to other shows and that's okay. Um, But, you know, there's just something in me that I want to see content out. And When I woke up this morning, I saw the decision had been made about Roe versus Wade, which was shocking and surprising. And I know there's so many mixed feelings and tensions in the air about this right now. I've got uh, friends and even family members who are um, pro-choice and they're frustrated. And then, um, you know, I've got friends and family also who are pro-life and they're uh, very excited about this. So there's just, there's a lot of tension right now in culture about this issue. And a buddy of mine named Ryan Lynn actually was on this show back in season six, talking about this very issue about abortion and about the value of life. And I was thinking, you know, in, in lieu of trying to get a new episode out, I thought it would be great to rebroadcast that episode with Ryan Lynn. Uh, Ryan is a former youth pastor. He's actually, he's, a, he's still a youth pastor, but just uh, a different church. Um, he is the founder of the Speak Life Collective, and which is a, it's a, it's a pro-life organization that's really based on helping educate people on how to have these kind of hard conversations with their friends who disagree, uh, helping change hearts and minds and helping really get the truth about this issue out to people. And so I wanted to share that episode with you guys because I think it's helpful. I think it's encouraging. I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how do we have these hard conversations, these really difficult, challenging conversations with people in our life who are frustrated about this decision or just like they just don't know the truth and we want them to know the truth. How do we convey that? So Ryan does a great job. Ryan actually wrote an article for calvarychapel.com. You can go to the front page of calvarychapel.com, which by the way, we just redesigned and uh, changed the website to make it just much more up to date, much nicer interface. Um, We hope it's going to bless a lot of people, but go to calvarychapel.com on the front page. Ryan has an article called the post row pastor, which is all about how do we face this new world uh, that is post Roe versus Wade. And as people in ministry, and this it's not just for pastors, it's really anybody who has a heart to serve and, and reach people on this issue. How can we change 
and, and adapt to this moment in a way that communicates truth, but in love and understanding the, the, the struggles that real people are going through um, who have bought into the lies that culture uh, tell. And so with that, I, I'm going to turn it over to Ryan and the episode, but this is an episode from season six. I hope it blesses you. I hope it encourages you. I hope it helps you to think through this issue. Uh, Ryan is, you know, he's a pro-life guy. That's one of his big ministries he does, but he's so kind and generous and warm and gracious and nuanced about it. I really respect how he has these kind of conversations. And I hope this episode helps you learn how to have these conversations in a way that's beneficial for everybody. So um, with that, enjoy this episode from season six of the Good Line Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to season six of the Good Lion podcast. We are back from our break and jumping into a super controversial topic. Today, we're going to be talking all about abortion. And it's a great conversation with our friend, Ryan Lynn. Brian and I had such a great time going through this complex topic with him. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I will just say there are some things that we discuss in this episode that are pretty sensitive. And so if you have kids with you in the car listening, maybe just make sure that they're at an appropriate age level to be exposed to this kind of conversation. Now, if you've got mature preteens or teenagers, we think this would be a great talk for them to listen to. So we hope you enjoy it. We are not experts by any means, but we are three guys that love Jesus and the Bible, and our hope is that everything that we say in this episode has a ton of truth and conviction and heart in it. So we hope it reaches you. We hope it blesses you. And of course, if you have any pushback, if you have any questions, any follow-up, you can email us at goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and let's get to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. This is Aaron Salvato. And I'm Brian Higgins. And we're here with the legendary Ryan Lynn. Hello. Legendary <laughs> intro. Hey Ryan, how you doing man? Glad you're here. I'm doing great man. I'm enjoying the wonderful weather here in Arizona. It's perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Is the weather in Arizona just perpetually like 115 or is that just what movies have trained me to think? <laughs> yes, if you live anywhere but where I live. I live in northern Arizona, so it's perpetually cold where I live. I'm at like 5,500 feet and so it's like 60 right now. So When I imagine Ryan Lynn, I just imagine cactuses and tarantulas because <laughs> when I visited him where he used to live in Borrego Springs, I encountered a tarantula for the first time and he went out and caught it in a mason jar. I was like about to cry. A grown man. Did you, you offer keep it? Like, I let it free. He paid. He was gonna. He was gonna do a hit job. He told me he'd pay me to kill yeah. it. Yeah. I. I, I, I was like, you're a youth pastor, so naturally you're a tarantula assassin. So you know, those nope. two things just go hand in nope. hand. Ryan Lynn is my good friend. We met at the youth camps that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa put on back in the day. We were both youth pastors. And we've been friends for a long time, ever since. Uh, you're no longer at, you, you used to be like the Lone Ranger youth pastor in Borrego Springs, <laughs> which is a super small town. And you were basically, I feel like everyone knew you in that town because I was in a coffee shop and I was talking to two teens and I said, hey, do you guys know Ryan Lynn? And they were like, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like just two random strangers, but they knew you. Yeah. They at least know of me. So were you the uh, only youth pastor in town? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are the only church in town. No, 
There was oh. like six or seven churches, but they'd all just hate how, teenagers. <laughs> how big yeah. was this town? Uh, 3000 in the summer, 14,000 in the winter. So it's like a, a snowbird town. So a lot of retirees, that kind of mm. thing. Really huh. good golf, really good hiking, but that's a lot about of tarantulas, it. lots of tarantulas, <laughs> yeah. lots of snakes. Good it, stuff. It, it's good times in Borrego Springs, but Ryan, we're not here to talk about Borrego. We're here to talk <laughs> about everyone's favorite topic, abortion, like a yep. super heavy and serious topic but one that I know is very near and dear to your heart. So can you explain a little bit about what you do regarding abortion? You, you are the founder of the Speak Life Collective. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I had a heart to get involved in the pro-life community. And where I lived in Borrego Springs at the time, this was in 2019, the nearest pregnancy care center was at least an hour and a half anyway, any direction. And so I thought, what can I do to make an impact in the pro-life community when I'm busy, full-time ministry? And so I thought, you know, being a youth pastor and working with issues of truth, we have to work a lot on how we say things. So I thought I can bring this love aspect to this community. So I just spent some time following a lot of pro-life leaders and seeing what's missing and started writing my own stuff, started making my own videos. And as I was making these videos, I had a lot of other everyday people, moms and teachers and different youth pastors who were thinking, were like, I'm liking what you're doing. Can I be a part of it? So then we made this little collective of different speakers and writers, and we started putting out content, how to have a discussion about pro-life issues in an effective way where people actually want to listen and then it's compelling. So mm, that's great, man. Yeah, I've seen the website, I've checked it out, and it's really, really solid. The best part of the website, I think, is there's a section called Answers, and you have essentially like, uh, it's a list, right, of here's yeah. the most common questions that come up about abortion or about the sanctity yeah. of life, and then you have like great responses for each one. Like it's something where if you were going to prep for that kind of conversation, you could go through and take notes and kind of copy some of that stuff into a you know document where you could have it open you know while you're trying to have a conversation with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's nice because even as I was thinking about this interview, I could pull up the website, click on a question, and be able to think through it. You know, and I think people respond well to that because we you know we're constantly googling our conversations anyway. So uh, pulling out your phone in the middle of conversation because you don't know what to say, I yeah. think is socially acceptable now. So. I think so. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. absolutely. Yeah. I love that idea of rethinking kind of the messaging that the pro-life community kind of comes at people with, because mm -hmm. uh, that's something I'm, I know we'll be diving into. But there's there's something to be said for there's real passion that can lead to a tone that isn't necessarily the most loving. Again, we'll dive into that a bit later in the episode. Yeah. But this is not a topic that people attack half-heartedly. What is it about the pro-life community that made this issue so important to you? Mm. Yeah, so I, there's a lot of things that have driven me to talk about this issue and, and become a part of the pro-life community. The first one is my mom had me out of wedlock. She got pregnant with me. But when she before she found out she was pregnant with me, she uh, was feeling sick, went to the doctor's office, and the nurse came in and said, you're pregnant. And I'm going to give you a moment to think about what you want to do. You know, she's in nursing school. She's single. And the nurse walks out of the room. And when she was there in the doctor's office, she said it was close as audible voice that she, she could hear. She wasn't a believer. 
and said, I want you to keep this baby. And she's like, what is going on? So the nurse comes back in. She tells the nurse, the nurse was a believer and the nurse gives her the gospel right there um, in the doctor's office. She gets saved. She ends up going to Calvary Chapel, Boise. There uh, was a card that came in the mail with $3,000 following that really closely. And she was praying like, Lord, how do I, how do I take care of this child? So from the get go, I mean, my life has been God supernaturally intervening in my own life and setting me apart for a purpose. So I feel uh, a kindred spirit, I guess, with the unborn in that way. Later in life, I, you know, found out about some family members who've had abortions and it really struck me, especially in junior high. And I'm a musician. I wrote a song. It was really intense. And um, as I was playing it for another family member, they were like, Ryan, you need to have some sensitivity. You didn't mm. realize, I didn't realize how harsh I was coming across. And they said, you know, I've had an abortion too. And mm. I thought, wow, I need to really think through this. And then, you know, I've, I've always had it on my heart, but never really, it's been a big issue. And then 2019, when the governor of New York signed the Reproductive Act, which allows abortion up to birth now in the wow. state of New York, wow. uh, that triggered me pretty, pretty majorly. Hearing people cheer, he lit up you know, mm. the Empire State Building, pink and all of that. I mm. thought, man, this is getting dark now. This is not eight weeks. This is, you know, moments before birth. So that's when I started making my videos and getting engaged more with it. And it's just been a journey from there. So, mm. yeah, man, that's a great story. And it totally makes sense why you're so passionate about this topic. Like it makes sense why you would want to dive into it because you are literally somebody who could have easily been an abortion. Like, yep. I mean, do you consider yourself you're not, you wouldn't call yourself like an abortion survivor, but it's, it's, it's one step before that. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, my mom was a uh, single mom and every reason she had all the examples they give, you know, for justified abortion, she would have fallen into a lot of those categories. Another reason that I failed to mention is both my wife's pregnancies mm. were incredibly difficult. She lost 20 pounds in the first trimester with both kids. She, she has a condition called hyperemis gravidarum. It's the same thing that the Duchess had, uh, Kate, where you throw up about seven, eight times a day gosh, and gosh. for seven months. And so my wife talks about this. She's a part of the collective too. She never considered abortion, but it, at many times she was considering death where it was like, God, just take me. I'd be wow. okay if I never woke up. Wow. I don't know if you've ever had a severe stomach flu, just where you just like don't want to live. You can imagine for seven months how difficult that is. So the whole argument of the health of the mother for abortion is also another area that hits really close to home for us. Mm. So. Mm. That's intense, man. Like that's, yeah. that's so intense. Like I wouldn't wish that on anybody having to throw up that many times a day. And it's crazy like that she... Like, it totally makes sense, like, why she would, like, even be like, man, like, Lord, just, just take me. Like, I don't want to live right now. Like, that, that's such a horrible state to be in. But it's, it's such a, I feel like it's such a powerful thing that through that, her heart was for her future kids and to not sacrifice their lives at the expense of her own comfort. And that, that's an aspect of this conversation that I think it's a, it's a complex and difficult one because a lot of people, I feel like there's a, a misconception in with abortion and in these conversations where sometimes like we can talk about people who are pro-choice as like, oh, they're just savage, horrible people that want to, 
you know, destroy children. But a lot of times the there's there's reasons and motivators for why they feel like abortion is the only option for them. And so I feel like it's a conversation that needs a lot more compassion without compromise. But I feel like compassion needs to be a part of the conversation. I don't know. What do you you think? Absolutely. One of the things that is very interesting when you start getting into the statistics of who's having abortions, one of the things that there's two things that stick out to me is that most women that have abortions are unmarried. Mm. 86%, according to the CDC, 86% of all abortions take place in single mother uh, families. Mm. So you know, they're all alone. Another interesting thing to me is the religious statistic of who's having abortions. Most abortions are actually religious. Listen to this. 24% of abortions are Catholic. Mm. Uh, 70% are mainline Protestant. 13% are evangelical Christians. Can can you break down why that would be? Like, why are we seeing that percentage of abortions happening in the religious community? See, this is why I have had such a heart for it, because I think a lot of of abortion is a internal conversation we need to have in the church. Because many of these girls that are having abortions that come from Christian homes, they're they're focused on the consequences of sin Hmm. rather than the cross and the gospel and God's grace. Hmm. So they're trying to remove the consequence of their sin being driven to... There is no other option. I can't let my parents know. Right. I, 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 or even parents who are going along with it. I can't mm-hmm. let my church know. I can't let my family know. Because often in the church, we treat sexual sin as if it's the worst of the worst kind of sin. So yeah. there's a, a shame and a stigma that comes with it where for some young women, it just feels like either if my parents find out or my church finds out, I'm going to be an outcast. I'm going to be hated. And so this is like the only option for me or my life is going to be ruined is where a lot of people seem to be coming from. Absolutely. And so getting back to that first question about, you know, that sensitivity, I think as Christians and and I I mainly speak to Christian pro-life people, I think it's important to remember that these are our girls, so to speak. This is our children, our sisters, our mothers. And the incredible thing is how many people, majority of women that will end up talking to that are over the age of 45, maybe not majority, but three out of 10, three out Mm -hmm. of 10 women over the age of 45 have had an abortion. So, I mean, the, the chance of having a conversation with somebody that's, that's walked down that road is also a, a high probability. So when I think through that, that it's Christian girls having abortions, it's, girls who do not have anyone in their life, they're unmarried, and that we're, we're looking at a high abortion rate amongst us, I think that can add a huge amount of sensitivity and not seeing them as the en- enemy because it could be, you know, your mom, your grandma, your pastor's wife, whoever, who's walked down this road. Yeah, even I think about the story of what got you personally connected with, I need to do something within the pro-life community. It was personalizing all of these kind of out there figures. You know, when I think about the way that the church normally has the abortion conversation, it's always there are these women out there who are doing all kinds of things and making all kinds of choices. And then they're getting themselves into these situations where then they wind up getting abortions. And when it's all out there, I 
I haven't lived the experience, but I can imagine the fear that comes up from, oh my goodness, I'm now the one that's out there. Like, mm-hmm. what do I do about this? I, I never tell anyone. I, I bury it. I make... I make sure that no one finds out about this situation. I I deal with it the best way I know how, and then I just move on. But for you to have seen all of those instances of the woman whose health is in danger during the pregnancy, the the vulnerable single mom that doesn't know what to do to to be able to personalize these things mm-hmm. makes it a lot easier to get sympathetic. And in churches, we often don't even consider how do we personalize this. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I totally agree. And just just so our listeners know, and hopefully hopefully you could tell, but sometimes this conversation can be so polarizing that if you get off of the normal script at all, people make assumptions about you. None of the three of us here are advocating for abortion to be this normalized option. What we're trying to draw attention to is the reality of how common this is and how many people go through it and the struggle of going through it. And I was just talking to a friend the other night and what came up was this idea of I'm not angry at women who have had abortions. My frustration is with people who are leading these women into thinking that it is the best option for them. That's where my frustration comes from. And so at the beginning of this conversation with a friend, you know, she responded to my story on Instagram where I brought up like that we were going to be having this conversation. And I said, hey, some of you guys are pro-choice. Give me some pushback. Like if you've got it, let's talk about it. So she sent me a message. And at the start of the message, and this is a friend of mine who's a Christian, at the start of the message, the, the, the rhetoric that she was giving me was like from the very start sort of everything that comes out of kind of the the modern pro-choice handbook in the sense of, yeah, you know, a fetus isn't really a baby until it's born and it's not really a life and all these things and and enlisting all of the different things that people go through, the the reasons why women get abortion. But at the start of it, it was like, like, yeah, it's 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 not it's not a real life. And I focused on that in the conversation just really gently and we talked it through. And by the end of the conversation, she was actually like, no, actually, you're right. Like, I I haven't been thinking of it that way, but like, yeah, you're right. Like uh, in the womb, (laughs) it is actually a real life made in God's image with dignity and value. But it took, you know, a couple hours of talking to get there. And I think that's what we're advocating for is we need to be willing to have those conversations to gently lead people back to that place of seeing the humanity of an unborn child. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean we excuse sin, right? That's a part of the gospel is mm. is calling sin, sin. One of my favorite quotes, there's a great book called The Case for Life. And Scott, who wrote the book, he said, if you've had an abortion, you don't need an excuse. You need an exchange. His mm. righteousness for your sinfulness. The solution to your guilt is not denial, it's forgiveness. You feel guilty because you are guilty. Mm. And so a big part of bringing healing to these women that have had abortions is not uh, creating a wall around them. It's to break through and to say, yeah, I have sinned and Mm. I've sinned grievously, but there's a God that gives me grace that is far outweighs my sin. And so that's where true healing comes from is the grace that's found at the cross. So we can't excuse his sin, right? So we need to to hold to truth, but we need to come in sensitivity with this conversation, keeping it in mind. Yeah, I think I think that's so important. And it's it can be so tough because I know people who are more I think it's left brain 
where isn't left brain the one where you're more about like the cold hard facts and then right right brain is more emotion and feeling and that sort of thing yes it's interesting because you would think the way that politics go it'd be it'd be it'd be reversed just stereotypes but yeah the left brain controls the right hand <laughs> well dude that's deep but I, i've talked to people who are more left brain and it's very much just like yeah it's murder like it is murder and and the people who commit abortion are murderers and like we should treat them like that and we should think of them like that and while i agree that abortion is murder i also believe that all sin the the wages of sin is death every single one of us who have sinned myself included you guys included you listeners included in god's eyes every single one of us is deserving of the harshest of punishments and yet we've been saved by like the most scandalous grace out there the, the, the grace that comes from jesus and so i'm carrying that thought into all of my conversations where it's like mm -hmm. i i could look at this person and say how dare you but really like I don't think people are the enemy. I think they're victims of the true enemy. And I think that quite often when it comes to sin, people are misguided. And so in the abortion conversation, I think a lot of people have been led into a misguided way of seeing it. And, and, and that has led to sin. And so the, the, the heart is like, we need to, we need to get them the truth. We need to pull them out. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys are aware in the pro-life community that there's really two camps and that it's very challenging to be a part of the pro-life community sometimes because of these two camps. So there's a camp called abolitionists where they want to bring laws that prosecute women. They consider women murderers. They will, you know, go around on social media, trash women who come out and tell their stories. And then there's another group uh, that's called incrementalists who are slowly bringing pro-life laws like heartbeat bills and things like that. And a lot of those laws that they more bring have to do with let's prosecute the doctors let's prosecute those who are targeting women not the women themselves the they see the women born as victims so that's kind of interesting mm -hmm. because those two groups can get lumped into one group and it also makes it really difficult to have meaningful conversations about making change in our country um, because you're sort of speaking so two different split. languages yes mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. which which side would you say that you lean more towards Definitely towards more of an incrementalist type view. Some of the southern states have come out with some great laws that have gone to the Supreme Court where they do a great job of prosecuting the, uh, the doctors and going after them uh, first mm. and not making it criminalizing the women. I, mm. I, I don't think that's helpful in any way because a lot of times these women are in uh, a victim uh, situation. So going after them does not make sense to me in my mind. Before we get too much further in the conversation, I, I feel like it's important for us to highlight one of the very common objections that I can imagine potentially someone listening to this conversation having with it. We are three white guys talking about a topic that deals with women's health and often deals significantly more with minority communities. And I feel like I've heard all the time whenever I've brought up this conversation and, and tried to be sympathetic and tried to be loving the same way that we're talking about it. It's it's very often you hear things like, oh, well, the whole pro-life camp is just a group of old white guys who are trying to legislate what women are able or not able to do with their bodies. 
how do you view that accusation and how do you try to step around that to be able to speak both love and truth at the same time? That's a great question. So there's a couple things here. I think asking good questions is really important when we start getting into any kind of debate when it comes to pro-life. And so you can ask the question, does truth change depend upon skin color or gender? And so then you're getting at the heart of what is the foundation of this person's worldview. If they have an absolute view of truth, then you can move forward. If they're a relativist, it's going to be very challenging because they're just going to be changing their argument from from thing to thing, right? Hmm. Uh, They're going to go from the argument of you're a bunch of white guys to an argument of well, what about rape? And it's just going to jump around because all they're trying to do is win, right? Because in a relativist uh, worldview, uh, might makes right. So the more people we can get on our side, then the then the more it's going to be true. I think another thing to point out is ask them, do you agree with the decision that was made in 73 with Roe versus Wade? Mm. And if they say yes, you can say, you know, that was nine white guys that made that decision. So if we are going to hold to the fact that you think that was a true morally acceptable decision by them, would you throw it out just because of their gender and because of their skin color? So you can, those are some ways to maybe point out some of the fallacies that people have. By asking good questions, you're showing them the fallacies in their own arguments without making a statement. So they can't accuse you of saying anything because all you're asking is them questions directly and seeing where they're coming from. And then you can have a meaningful conversation to go from there. I think another point to that also is that I think it's important that every type of person speaks up on abortion. If this is an innocent human life, it's important that everyone's speaking. So I think that certain voices have more weight and more credibility than others. And that's why my role in Speak Life has been to train up others who have more credibility in their their stories to bring truth that will be accepted. That's good. That's good. And I, I think in listening to what you just said, the only like light pushback I would give just to tease something out is you mentioned when you're talking to a moral relativist, did I say that right? Yeah. Relativist. Relativist, a moral relativist that their, their only goal is to win the argument. The only pushback I would give to that is I feel like, I feel like a lot of people who are more progressive are moral uh, relativists and their intentions a lot of the times because they don't actually believe because they've been led to believe that an unborn child is not actually fully human and worthy of dignity they're thinking in their minds what they're what they're arguing for is noble they're trying to care for women and so it's not coming from a place of oh i just want to kill babies it's coming from a place of i want to protect women and so I'm just I'm just saying I think we we need to give them a little bit more credit, but then also acknowledge that they're they're dead wrong in their conclusions, which is leading to like a horribly misguided application of their their ideology. Yeah, I appreciate that comment because it is important that we don't see the other side as the enemy. I think there's two conversations here, right? So what I said first would be very helpful to someone that's having that conversation. But if I'm Mm -hmm. talking to somebody who is a moral relativist, it doesn't help me to say, oh, you're just trying to win the argument. But when it really comes down to their foundation and being able to see through to it, are they making an argument for an improvement on morality? Hmm. Morality can only be improved if there is an absolute morality. Yeah, there's right? a baseline. There's a standard. Hmm. Yeah. So if they're just trying to win 
the argument for choice is choice a moral absolute that's mm. what you got to ask them yeah i love that strategy of how do i just ask good questions i remember a while back reading an apologetics book by norm geisler and one of the things that he talked about was play the role of the musician where you find the sour notes in what people are saying. Hmm. And you find those things by just ask more questions, get someone to try to explain what they believe. Because a lot of times we feel like if we're trying to bring the pro-life argument to somebody, we feel like we have to have this whole big thing put together. We have to have this whole spiel and it's always way easier to try to spot the holes in what somebody else is saying. Like, it's always easy to be the critic of the movie and to say, oh, well, that scene didn't work. But it's a whole lot harder to go make a movie. Like when you're making <laughs> the thing, the burden is on you. The responsibility is on you. So I, I think absolutely just being a good question asker. And then what can end up happening is as you ask people questions, they start realizing they don't really know why they think what they think or they don't know how to articulate it. And as those walls begin to come down, it becomes a lot easier to say, well, well, hey, maybe you're not fully settled with where you're at. Can I share with you what I think on this? And it, it, it is met with a much greater level of reception. I mean, it's a good strategy. And to be fair, it's the same strategy that a lot of really high level atheist thinkers use when they're trying to unravel a young Christian's faith. So it's what Satan used on Eve and it, it worked really well. <laughs> and we, yeah, we should employ it. No, no. It, I mean, if you, if you believe that a belief is false, instead of just telling people that you think it's false, asking them questions to consider the truthfulness of their belief is, is a good way to go. So yeah, I, I think for me, like the, the biggest part of this is whether or not a child in the womb is actually a human worthy of value and dignity. I think that's that's the strongest place to go. So, Ryan, I would ask you, could you break down for us, like what, what are your go to strongest arguments against abortion? If you can just like summarize some of your some of some of your positions on this that you use when you talk to people. And this is for the benefit of anyone listening who is a Christian who believes that abortion is morally wrong to learn from. But then we also hope if you're listening to this and you're pro-choice, we're not your enemy. We don't hate you, but we'd love for you to listen to what Ryan has to say here and, and just consider what he, what consider the viewpoints he's breaking down. Yeah, that's really a great question. Going back to what Brian said about good questions, speaklifecollective.com. If you go on that website and you go to the answers page, when you click on a question that someone posed to you that's pro-choice, you click on it and they say, well, what about rape? You go to that section on rape. There's about five or six questions you can respond with. So you didn't even you don't even need to bring the evidence. You could just ask good questions to keep the conversation going. A lot of times when we start making statements, that's when the conversation ends. It's important to have the information to know how to lead a conversation. But good questions will keep the conversation rolling and there'll be less offense. Getting back to what you said, Aaron, about what's the best arguments. One of the things I found, I don't know if you found this when you've talked to somebody who's pro-choice, is sometimes they will concede the idea that the fetus or the baby is human, hmm. right? So there are three positions. We put it on our website to make it clear that when you're talking to somebody, people will either bounce between these three positions or hold to one position. Hmm. So there's three positions in the pro-choice pro movement. The first one is not human. That's the one you just talked about. Hmm. That's the argument we've been having since 73, right? That people are just, that fetuses are just clumps of cells or they're not fully human they're partly human the second one is justified pro-choice 
yeah, it is a baby, mm. but there are acceptable times to kill a baby. You know, we, we as Christians, even not every Christian, but this is something I hold to, there's a difference between murder and killing, right? A murder is unjustified killing. So if you can justify the killing of an unborn, then it's not murder, it's just killing, right? Mm. So that's one of the arguments. The third position is personally pro-choice. And this is what we're seeing a lot, especially amongst millennials. Last statistic I saw that 56% of millennials consider themselves pro-life, but they do not vote that way and they do not live that way. So they're personally pro-life or personally pro-choice, meaning that I'm not, I am not going to put my beliefs on somebody else. Mm -hmm. I believe personally that it's wrong to kill a baby, <laughs> but I'm not gonna stop anyone else from killing a baby. So right. as far as getting back to what's the best arguments, it helps to know where people are coming from mm. um, to be able to have those, those discussions. So. Do you want to go through those three positions and how to respond to them? Yeah, sure. If you can just give us, you know, like the most like summarized, but, you know, succinct versions of your positions on those things. Like, you know, talk to us like we're two pro-choice guys. Okay. So if someone's holding the position that it's not human, the first step is you need to show that the baby is alive. And that's mm. the easiest argument to make. Things that are alive grow. Things that are not alive don't grow. So if you can show that the baby is growing, which is very easy to do with sonogram technology and many other things, it shows that at least this is a living thing, right? Mm -hmm. The next question is, is the fetus human? Now we can go to the scientific case and show that it is individual from the mother they have different blood types, different hearts, different circulation systems. They have different mm. DNA, different fingerprints. So not only is the baby alive, it also is separate from the mother. Mm. And thirdly, to show that the, the baby is human, right? It has human DNA. It's coming from a human mother. So it's a human baby. Now, the third part about this not human argument is that the debate really is not, is it a living human being growing? Is is it a valuable living human being mm. in the womb? Mm. So we got to show human value is the next thing. And so there's a great argument that you may have heard before called SLED that was put together by Stephen Swartz. And S stands for size, right? Is someone less valuable because of their size? L being level of development is someone less human because they're less developed. E stands for environment are you less human because you live in another country or you're mm. in the house or out of the house and that's what's really interesting about the law that took place in 2019 in new york because they're saying it's murder if the baby's outside the womb but you know literal minutes or seconds determine right. human value mm. um, in that perspective so showing that where the baby is doesn't show its value. And then D, degree of dependency is mm. the last one. So, and that's, are you less human depending on how much you depend on somebody else? Mm. So. Man, <laughs> you've got it locked in, man. That's great. I'm, I'm taking notes right now. Yeah, that's really good. One thing you just mentioned was uh, the value seems to change pre-birth to post-birth. And one argument mm -hmm. I've heard that's been really convincing to me is just the reality of that if a baby is born and somebody kills that baby, it's considered a crime and it's considered a tragedy. If 
the baby is killed, say, you know, in the second trimester or even in some cases, and it's not the norm, it's not the norm, but there are some that would like to make it the norm of abortion up to the point of birth in the third trimester. That's one thing that a lot of pro-choice people I've talked to have pointed out is like, that. that's not really the norm. Like, like we're not pushing for that. We don't like that. There are some people who do, but it, it is interesting that there are there's there is in the pro-choice uh, movement some that do advocate for that and, it, and and i'm just talking specifically to those people it's crazy to me that we would say that if a baby was killed days before it was born versus days after that somehow the value of that life changes mm. yeah yeah for sure it goes back to what is the unborn that's really the question we need to ask greg krokel in his book precious unborn human persons has this great quote talking about this. He says, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. Mm. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. Mm. Mm. So it really goes back to that first main question of what is the unborn? Is Mm. the unborn valuable? And so what we're really talking about is human value as a whole. Why are humans valuable? And this is really where the gospel can come in and it can become a really beautiful conversation to have with someone because maybe what you're speaking into their life is why they are valuable. Because many times people stop believing that they were valuable. I've counted dozens of times that I've talked with teens who have talked about, well, I just wish I was never born. You know, I have no purpose. And so you can speak the gospel into their life at that point and show why human life is valuable, including their own. Yeah, so it can yeah. open a great conversation. Yeah, it, it's cra- it's crazy to me. I agree with everything you're saying. I, I remember there was one time I was talking to a young guy who was very progressive and very pro-choice. And he was very into the concept of bodily autonomy. So like that was his highest value was like people being able to do whatever they want with their body. And what I brought up to him was like, so let's say your parents wanted an abortion, but for some reason they were prevented from getting it. And now you're here if you could travel back in time and like convince them to get the abortion, like, would you do that? And he was like, Oh yeah, because bodily autonomy is like the way to go. So I'm like, you would erase your own existence because of your commitment to this ideal of bodily autonomy. And that, yeah, that, that that just doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what's more compelling is this idea that, that life is actually valuable because I think, you know, this is another way I think of it. I, t- I tend to think a lot in like abstract hypotheticals because that's how things make sense to me. So one thing I was thinking through was, you know, let, let's let just I'll put it in these terms because I'm thinking of like how people talk about these issues on social media. Let's say there's a celebrity and they get pregnant. Everybody's stoked like, oh, Beyonce is pregnant, you know, and so everybody, all the fans are super stoked. And then let's say, you know, in the second trimester, she has a miscarriage and she posts like, you know, something like, oh, I lost my baby. I'm so sad. Like, no, I don't think most of her fans are going to be like, oh, it wasn't a baby. It, it was just a clump of cells. People are going to empathize with her because that baby was wanted, like it was desired. And so therefore it had value in the eyes of, you know, this hypothetical celebrity situation. And so I think for a lot of people, it's like, If you really go to the logical extremes of their view, what they're saying is people's intrinsic worth is only based on whether or not they're wanted. If you're unwanted, then you deserve to die. 
if you are wanted, then you deserve to live. And it's a tragedy if you do die. Yeah. And I think like you're saying, Ryan, that is exactly the moment where the gospel can come in and we can say, we know because of what Jesus did, every human is wanted. Mm. Every human is valuable, maybe not by your biological family. And that's a, a huge tragedy when that happens, yeah, maybe yeah. not by, you know, your immediate community or your standard idea of what community should be. But in the gospel, we find each person is valued. Each person is wanted. Jesus was willing to give up his life so that you wouldn't have to lose yours. You know, there's such hope and comfort that gets found in that. And Aaron, I just want to jump back to your conversation with the guy who was really focused on bodily autonomy. Mm. Like that to me sounds like a moment where have you, you've been in moments where like you're making an argument and you begin to hear that it kind of sounds silly out loud, mm. but then you just can't let it go in the moment. And then you <laughs> walk away from that conversation. You're like, oh man, I think I kind of lost that one. Like, <laughs> I think there is something to be said for because these are highly emotional conversations and they're emotional for all parties involved. I'm not saying they're only emotional for pro-choice people. They're emotional for everybody because we're talking about something extremely important. It is worth realizing that the reaction of someone in the moment may not be the extent of what your conversation with them accomplishes. Mm. I think so much of what we're doing is we're planting ideas. And just like Jesus talked about sowing the seeds of his kingdom, we're, we're sowing seeds and we're backing away and letting them have their opportunity to kind of work in people's minds. So mm. Ryan, you hit the, the first pro-choice view. What's the second one that you wanted to hit? Mm. Yeah, so the second one is justified pro-choice. So we hear these, what about the health of the mother? There's there's these exceptions, right? I would encourage you guys to go to abort73.com. They give great statistics and these are taken from CDC. And these are also taken from a Guttenmacher, which is like the research arm of Planned Parenthood. Hmm. And so these are secular pro-choice statistics. I guess CDC is not pro-choice, but, you know, they're secular. Hmm. And so when you look at the statistics of why people are having abortions, it's always elective. In Florida, you have to record the reason for your abortion for every single abortion. And it's 76% of abortions in Florida that take place are for elective reasons. Mm. So we're talking about a very small sliver when we're talking health of the mother, the case of rape, case of incest, but people will always use those because what they're really looking at when they're asking us those questions is not to see if we have an answer, but to see if we have a heart. Mm. Do you mm. care about the woman who is sick in bed for seven months? Do you care about the woman who was raped and now has to face her offspring that looks like her uh, oh, attacker, shoot, I lost. attacker. Yeah, mm. exactly. But what's really, really encouraging is you look at how many women choose to keep their baby, even in spite of having been raped more often, they will keep their baby. And many women who choose to have an abortion will say that the abortion was a bigger deal to them than the rape itself. Wow. That now they have two mm. dates that they're remembering that both when they were raped and then following when they chose to have an abortion. And wow. many times that child will, will become a source of hope. Mm. If you go to liveaction.org and you just search the topic. You're saying for the ones that kept the baby? Those who kept the baby. Mm. There's a great, a great video that Live Action did that was says, said, my son is so much more 
than a product of rape. And she tells the whole story Mm -hmm. and it's just the most beautiful story. And so I think the way that we can respond to the justified pro-choice is not really with answers, but stories. So I found, you know, telling our own story about my wife and her sickness and, you know, seeing my two children, no one would say my wife should have had an abortion when they see my two kids standing right next to me, right? So personal stories go a long way in answering the justified pro-choice because justified pro-choice is more of an emotional argument than it is a logical argument. People are hurting and so they're using that pain to leverage for their argument. So Mm. that's the second one. Uh, The third one is personally pro-life, meaning they just personally hold that view, but they don't want to legislate or control other people's choices. And there's two things with that. I loved, I love Martin Luther King. He, he says it's, it's true that you can't legislate morality, but it can keep people from lynching me. You know, laws are important and they are secondary to having good conversations and changing of the heart, but we should be about protecting the vulnerable in our country in our culture one of the quotes i don't know who said it it was on a podcast and i've been trying to find the podcast but one guy who is a guest uh, on one of the pro-life podcasts i listened to he said imagine if we had 2500 kindergartners killed on playgrounds every day in america Mm -hmm. how different would your response be when would you start standing up when you consider that planned parenthood kills a baby every 89 seconds in America. Mm. This is a serious, serious issue. So, so the, um, the, uh, the argument would be like, what if instead of people choosing to kill their unborn babies, it was, you know, Planned Parenthood and, and, and other abortion doctors and, and methods. It was if you're, if, if your kindergartner is unwanted, if your kindergartner is a burden on your life in any way, then you can go to this service and they will take out your kindergartner. Yeah. And it's really coming down to because the personally pro-life person has already been convinced that the human life is important and they would never have an abortion themselves. They just don't want to put that on somebody else. They're more pro-choice, right? So Mm -hmm. they just don't want to legislate anything. They don't want to step on anybody's toes. And it really comes back to opening the door into the clinic, really showing Mm -hmm. how incredibly violent abortion really is. That's when we'll see real change in our culture. I, I don't know how you guys have felt, but have you ever driven by, you know, abortion clinic or somewhere else and you see those pictures of people who have, you know, aborted fetuses, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, mm-hmm. is that the most loving way to like, to really convince people not to have abortions? Yeah. It seems like it would push people away, right? I don't know right. if you've ever felt that way. Yeah. I have, I've felt that way and I don't think it's the best argument, but we got to do something, right? The civil rights movement was all based upon a picture of a uh, young man, Emmett, who was brutally beaten, right? Mm, and mm. Rosa Parks saw that that picture and she sat in the bus because of it, mm, right? Wow. It was, she saw the severity of what was happening w- with racial tensions in our country mm. and she did something about it. So for the personally pro-life, I think what we need to do is open up the casket and show them how incredibly violent this really is. It needs to become real to people. Yeah, that, that's that's good. It, it, it's challenging. It's very challenging for a lot of us in different ways. Like, I know for me, one thing that I have thought over the years in different ways has been, you know, uh, I don't know if we should necessarily always in every circumstance, I'm not just talking about abortion, but a lot of different political issues, 
you know, like should Christians really be trying to legislate morality? And I had a, a mentor of mine point out the reality that every law is someone's morality being legislated. And yep. so you have to factor that in too. Like you, you shouldn't just be out necessarily trying to, you know, execute everyone for every crime or lock everyone up for every crime. But laws do need to be in place if you want to see change in the world. But it has to be a combination of, of law and the church working together. And so like, you know, one, one thing, one thing that I think through with this is, you know, we've talked about it on this show uh, many times, but you know, uh, Brian and I both kind of feel this way. I don't know if you feel this way, but this idea of like political homelessness, where it's like, there's things we want to see happening in the world, but is there a party that actually will like really make those things happen and not just say it. And so this is not like a, this is not me putting on my pastoral hat right now. This is just me being a, th a thinker and a dreamer about stuff, I guess. But when it comes to like political solutions, I'm just thinking about like cases like rape and you know, yeah, let's just go, let's just go there. Like women that have been raped or abused or incest. I, if it were up to me, if I was president, you know, I, I think it would be great if we could really push for political solutions to like really hardcore make abortion, like not the main option. And there's like, there's like alternatives that are like, like number one, number two, number three, number four on the list, like things like better healthcare options for women who are in poverty. That's one thing I learned is uh, poverty is one of the biggest reasons why abortion is considered this solution for people because they're like, I can't afford to go to the hospital. I can't afford to deliver. It's going to ruin me financially. Things like free psychiatric trauma and counseling for rape victims, things like making adoption easier and cheaper. And the thing is, like I said, do I want these things? Like if, if I could choose where my tax dollars go, would I want to help women in this way? Absolutely. Is that a possibility with the politics we have in place? I don't, I don't know. And I don't think so. And so my stance with these kind of things is if the government isn't going to do it, then the church should step up and do it. You know, the church should be at the, the front lines of helping women. And, and, and that is something that we're seeing. Like the, the church really is one of the leading sources of helping women in crisis when it comes to abortion. But the church doesn't have that reputation because it's so often caught up with the political side of the pro-life movement that when you talk to non-Christians, they just assume, oh yeah, Christians are just heartless and they don't care about you and they just want to see you locked up for abortion. Mm. There's a lot of things there that come to my mind. To yeah, hopefully, to, hopefully I don't sound like a communist to. right now. There's a lot of things that, that really speak to me in what you were saying. Number one, you talked about that political homelessness. Mm. Right. You know, you vote for somebody and then you're voting for everything they yeah. stand for. I think the pro-life issue needs to become a bigger deal for the church, not less that we vote. We are single issue voters. Right. Because it is catastrophic what is happening in our country. There is no issue that's even close to what's happening with abortion. In our, and it's and it's trapping men and women in pain for a lifetime. And that that goes into so many other areas, divorce and alcoholism and so many other things. So I think we need to be, we need to, we need to be those who are pro-life in our voting. But I think people get off easy when that's all it is, where it's like, oh, I check the box once every four years and now I'm pro-life. That's not, that's not enough to instill hope into women who are hurting. 
Another thing to think about when you're talking about the government stepping up and doing these things is to think about abortion internationally. Mm. I mean, America has about 800,000 abortions right now. We've we've been declining, which we'll talk about probably later. But, you know, over 40 million abortions worldwide take place. Those women have no opportunities for a better life when when they're choosing to have an abortion. Their governments don't have the resources for it. So the church is the best option, right? It's not the church going in and taking away every ailment that they possibly could have come into their lives, but giving them the hope of Jesus Christ, that we are instilling hope into people's lives that says, no matter what suffering we face, that there's a hope beyond this life. You know, we went to the doctor for my wife. We had the resources for my wife, but she still for seven months laid in a bed, kept throwing up, even with medication. Mm. The thing that carried us through was our relationship with Jesus. So the way we can see a real difference is giving people the hope of Jesus. That is what is going to sustain people and make a huge difference. So I want to ask you about the idea of being a single issue voter. That's that's not the way that I think about myself. And part of the reason why that's not the way that I think about myself is I, ha- I have this fear that parties kind of know that they can move Christians wherever they want of like, I can just call myself pro-life. I don't really have to do anything about it. I could just say it. And now I'm the candidate of family values. And then I can kind of go on to do whatever else it is that I really want. But I won the vote because I said the right thing. I love you bringing up the idea we need to do more than just vote. I I guess one of the questions I have is what is it that the pro-life community is actually gaining through voting? Because I don't necessarily know. And what is it that we can do beyond exclusively just voting pro-life so that we can make a difference beyond the ballot box? That is a great question. So elections have consequences, right? And Mm. We are seeing that right now. Uh, the current administration, the current Congress, they are they are definitely pro-choice and, and, and pushing those agendas. One of the things that I thought was very, very encouraging about this last election, which you're like, is there anything that's possibly <laughs> encouraging? You're the first last- person who's ever called the 2020 election <laughs> encouraging. I was just so encouraged by the 2020 election. I just, <laughs> I just every day I wake up and I thank Jesus for the 2020 election. Yeah, because everyone knows that I'm like pro-life is kind of my thing and it's how I vote. People want to push back and have conversations with me about it. Right. And so when voting for the president, you know what people would do is they would give me the pro-life issue. They would go, yeah, I see that, that it's important. Right. So I'm seeing as the conversation is is growing, people are understanding that people are becoming more pro-life, like that pro-life is the biggest issue to us as voters. So they're trying to, so what their argument would be is, well, the president doesn't have any say in policy when it comes to pro-life and he doesn't make any real change. So I thought that was cool because they're conceding a point that they know that the culture is shifting towards Mm. that way. So that was encouraging to me. What was discouraging to me in the previous administration was there was all these pro-life groups that have been working since 73 and making real efforts and making a real difference. And the administration jumped onto that, like you're saying, and just said, oh, this, look at what all we did, taking credit for all of those Mm. grassroots works that have been done. So I have problems on both sides, right? But the cool thing is, especially in Congress, you can see how people vote. So if your congressman or senator is voting pro-life, they should get the credit for that. So mm. if you're, if the president is doing things that are pro-life, 
he should get rewarded for that with a vote, I believe. One of the biggest things that is happening right now is the reappeal of the Hyde Amendment. President Biden was really big on trying to reappeal the Hyde Amendment, which is taxpayers paying for abortions. So that's something they really want. Secondly, the Mexico City policy, it bounces between presidents all the time. It's been happening for a long time, which is paying for international abortions. So they do have an effect. So I think it's very challenging once we start talking politics, like going back to that abolitionist, incrementalist, because we all know that we're pro-life, but how are you going to actually solve it is there's a huge debate there. But we should be doing something and engaging. Well, let me let me ask this. So like, let's say there's somebody listening to this and because because a lot of times the way that we frame this is it's just all about the vote in the presidential election and nothing else. And you just you vote and then you turn off your brain and you're like, well, I guess Trump's going to take care of abortion or I guess George W. Bush is going to take care of abortion. So my question is, let's say there's somebody listening to this and, you know, let's say they're, they're convicted and the Holy Spirit speaking to them. They're Christian. Maybe they they already voted. Maybe they voted for a, a party that supports abortion. At that point, what do you say to that person? Like how if that if that person's like, I want to help, I want to make a difference, I want to make a change, but I already voted and now there's four years. So how do we take the conversation beyond the vote and, and turn it towards what can if you're if you're convicted about this issue and you want to make a difference, how can you make a difference? Thanks for asking that question. Yeah, because the vote is very small in the effect we're having. I don't know if you know this, but abortions went down under President Obama. Abortions went down under President Trump. And I believe abortions will go down under President Biden. Yeah, um, isn't it lower now than it was when Roe versus Wade was passed? I don't know about that for sure, but the 90s were the height of abortion. So hmm. during the hmm. Clinton administration. That's the statistic I've heard recently hmm. is that the, the rate is currently lower than it was before Roe versus Wade was passed. So that's that's progress. That's that's important to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you guys think is the reason for abortion declining in America? I've I've read and seen things that young people are just simply having less sex. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually I very don't true. think that's where you're going, but that's yeah. where my brain went first. Yeah, that could be a that could be a huge piece of it. I, I think it's interesting when you start talking to people of why are abortion rates going down? People bring up um, birth control, right? They bring yeah. up contraceptive, co sorry, contraceptives. So I personally believe, and it's really hard to know with the fact why abortion is going down. I think it's prayer. Since 2011, there has been a huge movement of prayer in America. Yeah. There's a group called 40 Days for Life, and they've had some serious results from it. They've done 6,428 total campaigns. They've done it in 855 cities, 61 countries. They've had a million people praying along with them twice a year. They have 19,000 churches involved. They've saved 16,000 babies from abortion. 190 abortion workers have quit. Uh, 104 abortion facilities have closed. There are states in our country now that no longer have abortion clinics. And I think a lot of that has to do with the power of prayer. I believe wait, wait, wait. So what you're saying? Things. So what you're saying is that prayer actually does something? It does. <laughs> <laughs> Could you elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I'm now in the state of Arizona. We're down to eight abortion clinics in our entire state, and the numbers keep dropping. And I believe when people's hearts are moved by prayer, then when we're praying, we're practically moved too, right? 
So we come alongside that girl that we saw walk into the abortion clinic mm. and pray with them. We're involved in our pregnancy care clinics. All mm. those things, when we, when we galvanize the church to pray, they are now more practically active too. So yeah. it's, it, there's a supernatural work that's happening um, behind mm. the scenes that people mm. don't understand. And secondly, there's a practical work that's taking place all through the power of prayer. So if there's anything we can do, it's really genuinely daily praying for the unborn in our country. That will make mm. the biggest change. That's that's huge. That's that's really important. And I and I think like this is something this is a personal conviction of mine. But even though, you know, I am not somebody who would consider myself a progressive at all in any way, especially on moral issues. I also am, I can acknowledge that there are some Christians that vote differently, you know, and they exist. And I feel like a lot of times the church doesn't want to acknowledge that. Like, I feel like one, like one thing just to bring up, that's a reality. That's an important part of this is people do not just vote the way that they do based on abortion or gay marriage or whatever. One thing that somebody pointed out to me that was like a huge eye opener was the majority of the black church in America votes left. Now that can be like concerning to you. That can be a struggle, but I think we need to acknowledge that there are reasons beyond abortion or gay marriage, like why people vote the way that they do. And I don't think it's crazy just to acknowledge that that reality exists. So for me, this is a conviction I have is however you vote. If you turn off your brain at that point and say, my job is done, you're actually like <laughs> you're, you're failing in a lot of ways. And so whether you vote left or right, and I'm not here to like, I'm not making a statement about whether, you know, either one, but what I'm trying to say is whether you vote left or right, you should look at what are the blind spots or weaknesses in that party? What are they not doing that actually Christians are called to do? And, and then you step up as the Christian and you, you do those things because what I see too often is I'm just seeing right now, there's a huge departure of a lot of young Christians into, we talked about this on the show, but the idea of like progressive Christianity. And so they're drifting towards both progressive theology, but also progressive politics. Mm -hmm. And I see Christians where, you know, because they're unsatisfied with the right wing, they're all of a sudden like not just not just like crossing over to the other side but like embracing their ideology so i talk to young christians and they're just completely pro-choice now and they were once like for life but now they've absorbed that ideology and so my thing is like i mean if you, if you just absolutely feel you have to vote that way that's that's one thing but then to embrace that ideology like what are you doing be a force for good on that side you know like be be somebody on on that side who's pushing everyone else to actually like care about the existence of, of life. And it, it's dicey. It's complicated. There's some people listening to me who are probably just like what you're saying sounds like insanity, but I'm, I'm just saying those people exist. Mm -hmm. And if it's just turn off your brain and just go with whatever that side says about everything. I mean, I don't think people on the right should do that either. I don't think yeah. you should vote for the right and then just turn off your brain and yeah. everything that Fox News, everything that Ben Shapiro, everything that yeah. every pundit on that side says is now your theology. That's not how it works. You're a Christian. You go to the scripture for your theology Amen. not what the culture on either side says. Amen. And I, I know that you guys have experienced this too. If you, if you show any criticism of being outside the camp in any way, you're like a leper. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> you must have embraced all the worst things of that side. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you have to, you have to do, you got to stand for truth, right? We don't stand for a party, but we should stand along those who are 
standing up for the most vulnerable in our in our in our culture. Another thought that came to my mind too is change never happens from external uh, forces. You mm. see this in parenting. I don't know if you guys grew up in a Christian home, but growing up in a Christian home, you see parents. You know, if you homeschool them, you don't send them to public school. You don't you know, let them watch these movies, then their hearts are going to be changed because of all these external forces. But we know as believers that it is the Holy Spirit that comes inside us and changes us from the inside mm. out. And this mm. is why going back to prayer is so important. The reason that people have an abortion or having abortions in our country is because of an idolatry problem, mm. right? There's something that they love more mm. than God. So they're drawn to their careers. They're drawn to the life that they thought that they were going to have. It's not external forces. And this is what I see a lot coming from the progressive left, where if we just feed them, house them, and do all these things to take care of people, yeah, then, then the therefore they're away. never going to have an abortion mm -hmm. ever again. But that's yeah. not the truth. The truth well, is, is the, they need hope and we need right. to give them that. And that that's true. And then on the right, it's if we just teach abstinence, then kids will stop having sex. If we yeah. just take away their birth control, then they won't have sex and they won't get pregnant, which obviously we know is not the case. So both sides are attacking the symptoms, but not the disease. Yeah. There's an old sermon by a guy named Chalmers that says the expulsive power of a new affection. And um, I, yeah, <laughs> I will then always love sin and the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. Mm. So mm. until we show that Jesus is better and that there's hope found in Jesus, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. The circumstances mm. are not going to stop people from having abortions. It doesn't matter if we have laws. It doesn't matter if they're taken care of. Now, those things will be contributing factors to some extent. But really what will change the abortion debate is when people find Jesus and find hope yeah. in him. So that's what yeah. we need to carry to people's hope. Yeah, it, it's kind of like, do you remember the show Intervention? Intervention was a show that almost exclusively was my 11th grade health class after they finished driver's ed. <laughs> and basically what happens in every episode is it's the story of someone who is addicted to some kind of substance and they kind of detail what's going on with their addiction and then an intervention specialist comes in and helps the family perform an intervention on that person. And one of the things that always stands out to me is like they come with a lot of resources. These people are offering the opportunity to go to rehab. They're offering like we have a plane ticket for you. Those resources coming in are really important. But they always say, if this person does not want to go, all of the resources that we could possibly offer aren't going to make a difference. And you often hear in that conversation, as the person's deciding, do I want to go to this? They start with asking all of the practical questions They're like, oh, well, how am I going to get there? It's like, oh, we have a plane ticket. Like, where am I going to go? It's like, oh, it's this place out in Arizona. Like we got we have all this practical stuff figured out, but then they have to settle into, do I actually want to do this? And so mm -hmm. I, I think that there's there's power in both end by being able to show people, yeah, you need that resource. Great. We want to provide it for you. We want to work to offer you every single thing you need. If we do that, are you willing to let go of something in your heart for something better? Because really the whole Christian wow. journey is letting go of evil things within our hearts to find the better thing that God has for us. And he's ultimately 
the perfect resource provider. Amen. I love that. And like you talked about with those resources, that's another fallacy before I came became a part of the pro-life movement that I had that we weren't offering any resources. And the reality is, is there are so many pregnancy mm-hmm. care clinics in our country. Mm-hmm. It's unreal what the church is doing across across America. And mm-hmm. so to really dig into that, there's a group called CareNet. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're in that situation and you need help, look up CareNet. They have a whole network of resources available for you to be able to get the help you need to connect you to a pregnancy care clinic in your area. That's great. That's great. Something else that, that's come to my mind in this conversation is I feel like a lot of times our, our terminology when we talk about things like abortion, things like racism, uh, like big issues in our country and in our world, it's like, how do we end this? And yeah. I feel like as a Christian, we need to actually think through it differently mm. because the scripture actually tells us that until Jesus comes back, there is, there are always going to be evils in the mm. world. Like you, you will always have war. You will always have poverty. Does that mean we just throw up our arms and say, Oh, we can't do anything because it'll always exist. No, not at all. But we need to have this mentality of it's not about trying to end something, but it's about how can we continually fight against it? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not going away, even if you outlaw it completely. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to remove it from being a legally accepted thing. But what I'm saying is even if you outlaw it completely, it'll continue to happen. Even if you criminalize racism, racism will continue to exist. There, there is always like sin will always exist. And so for us as Christians, the goal, we can't, if, if it's always about ending it, the goalpost is always going to be moving. But if it's about, this is a fight we have to be dedicated to for the rest of our lives. Like as, as followers of Jesus, we're living for his kingdom. And so we're constantly pushing back darkness in our world. And so just, just having that in mind is helpful for me, like just understanding it's a continual fight. And then I love what you said about prayer, because I feel like what gets criticized a lot in our culture is the idea of thoughts and prayers. You know what I mean? Something horrible happens and it's like, oh, thoughts and prayers. But the difference is you're talking about what scripture talks about, which is the effect, the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is effective. It's the difference between just like, oh, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. God, please help abortion to stop. Or like, I am going to get on my knees with a group of people and we're going to advocate but before the Lord, before like the throne of God. You know, we're, we're going to really pray about this. And we're not just going to pray in the sense of, God, can you magically and mysteriously make this go away? But God, show us what to do as the church. Like change our hearts, change our perspective and show us by the power of the Holy Spirit, lead us to how can we help these women? How can we affect this in the political realm? How can we affect this like boots on the ground, like like helping actual women with what they're going through? How can we adopt? How can we you know, give, give money to support charities that are like combating this. Like that to me, that's, that's, that's the fruit of the prayer is it's God doing stuff in the supernatural realm, but it's also him changing our heart Mm -hmm. and getting it more on page with what he wants to do. Amen. It goes back to this discussion is just a vehicle to lead people to Jesus. There's nothing we could ever offer anyone that will have a lasting impact with, with Jesus, not in it. Right. We have to, give hopeless people the only source of hope, which is Jesus himself. So these create great opportunities to have those conversations. So how do we affect change in our in our country and our world? I think there's the two things that Speak Life is big on is prayer mm. and having effective conversations. And so that's speaking the truth in love and like what we've been talking about, people's minds and hearts are changed 
through conversations. Mm -hmm. So our website's all there available to be able to help train you um, and point you to good resources to be able to have good conversations. I think we should all be prepared to have those Mm -hmm. conversations. Right, because if you can change a heart or a mind, you can save a life. You can save the life of the child. You can also save the life of the mother. Yeah. You know, you can save the life of the mother and her husband from like the, the horrible heartbreak that'll come, yeah. you know, through making that mistake. And that's one of the things I think of as you brought up, Aaron, the idea of we want to be in it to end it, so to speak. You can be part of ending the negative effects that abortion can have in a family. Mm. You can be part of ending the effect that abortion has within a particular community. Will you solve the problem worldwide? I highly doubt it. But when we share the gospel with people, if we see one person get saved, we don't get sad and think like, yeah, but there's so many other people that need to get saved. We're like, wow, God, you change this person's life. Hmm. I want to celebrate the fact that you have ended the reign of sin in this one person's life. If we keep that personal approach, it's easier to stay motivated. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I I think we have that mentality of ending because we kind of compared in our minds to, you know, how we, we think of slavery ending because of a president, Abraham Lincoln, freed the slaves. Therefore, slavery is over. And we just think of it that way. It's like, oh, we just need a president. We get, we need the right president to get in. Who's going to be so powerful that he just ends this thing. But here's the reality. Slavery still exists. And and not just outside of America, sex trafficking and sexual slavery happens all of the time. Like our, our country uh, during the Super Bowl is one of like the, the, it's the leading uh, places. And, and I'm probably butchering this. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's it it happens a ton here. So yeah, it's a continual fight that we yeah. all need to have when we think of these things. Is it's not it's not just about the simplicity of end it and then it's over and it's done. But it's we need to continue this fight, and that's something I can see with you, Ryan. Like you care about this, even if the right laws were passed and criminalization happened. Like you probably wouldn't turn off your brain and say, "Okay, I'm done. I don't yeah. need to, I don't need to fight against this anymore." you would continue to try to work with women and help educate people and and help change hearts and minds because people are still going to sin even if laws prevent it. Yeah. And I think there's some red flags that are going to go up on both sides when we start talking this way, because one side's going to say, so you don't want to put an end to abortion. Like, (laughs) don't you see the importance of it? And then you'll have the other side say, see, they're saying that, you know, if we really want to have change, it's not the law, so we shouldn't change our laws, right? Mm. So mm. you have mm. both sides. So what we are saying is our laws should be moral and yes. abortion is immoral. Yes. So let's have moral laws. But if we end abortion through laws, just meaning that it's now criminalized, it doesn't end abortion. People are going to still have abortions. And I heard one person say that we are going to need more pro-life people if we end abortion because we are going to have 800,000 unwanted pregnancies in our culture now, right? So now we're going to need 800,000 church families to take women in or whatever that statistic might look like, Mm -hmm. you know? So it is going to put a bigger strain on our government, on the church, but that's what we're here for is to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. So like you said, we're not going to stop engaging if we ever have those laws passed where we we see an end to legal um, abortion. Yeah, like let's just say that the harshest laws imaginable got passed, right? I feel like there'd be many people in the church where their temptation would just to be like, all right, we've done it. We've done what we wanted. We won, mission accomplished. It's been criminalized. I would say 
if the harshest laws that we could think of for this got passed, the church would need to double down on their compassion. Like to like if people are getting thrown in prison for abortion, like the prison ministry needs to expand to like just incorporate that and to visit these people and show them, Hey, there, there is freedom from your guilt and shame over this. There's hope in Jesus. Like, let me tell you about my sin and how I deserve death for what I've done. But, but look at what Jesus has done for me. I just think compassion needs to be correlated with our morality. Our morality needs to have compassion in it. And and I think, you know, in in one of my conversations the other day with the, the friend I was talking to, we were talking about, you know, like, it, it was, it, what was the, what was the one way of thinking of it? You were talking about, there's the three different ways where it was like uh, justified, like the idea of it being a justified abortion, right? Like a justified killing. What, what was that called? Uh, yeah. Just justified pro-choice. Justified pro-choice. Yeah. We were talking about that. And basically it was this idea of like, well, yeah, I, be- I believe that it is a human, but I think that sometimes, you know, it, it, there, there are cases where, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with anybody else's choice. Like that's between them and God, what they want to do. And the thing I brought up just to push back on that, I I was like, okay, we're always thinking about this as like a baby in a womb and also the idea of a woman and her choice. And so there's feminism that's wrapped up in it. And feminism seems like a very noble thing. And in in some ways it is a lot of ways with third wave feminism, it's not, I would say, but just the idea of women having rights and values and not being abused or mistreated, that's, that's a very noble thing. But what I brought up was let's take it out of those contexts and let's say a mysterious alien force basically forces a bunch of men to carry women on their backs for nine months. Their option is either carry the woman, provide for her, feed her, make sure she's okay, make sure she's taken care of, keep her alive. Or if they want to be free from that burden, they can kill her. And I just brought that up. It was like a hypothetical that came to me in the moment. And I was like, is it noble for those men to kill those women because of their bodily autonomy mm. and because this has been forced on them? It wasn't their choice. So is it, is it noble for them to have that choice to kill the women? And my friend was kind of like, oh, yeah, when I think of it that way, like, no, that's not noble at all. Mm. And I was like, well, OK, like that's that's what I'm saying. If we can agree that an unborn baby is valuable, just as valuable as you or me, if, if, if that's our common ground, if, if it's, if it's an intrinsic value that they have, why don't we treat them the same that we would a a woman Mm. on the back of a man, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but. Well, actually it's a, an analogy that pro-choice uses. There's a, there's an argument called the violinist that you can look up and seeing both the responses to it. I forgot it was a sociologist of some sort that came up with that argument and it, it, it's pretty valuable because, you know, it's, it, the idea is, is what if you have the world's greatest violinist and she wakes up with this other human attached to her and she has to stay attached to this other person. So for them to survive, you know, but she's not able to, you know, live her life as this great violinist, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's, it brings up this moral dilemma. The one point that I think you could add to that is this is your child and we mm-hmm. all have a moral obligation to our children. So that really removes a, some of the impersonalness of, of it, so to speak. So yeah, it goes back to that compassion. Another thing you were talking about how we need more compassion is stopping an abortion or intervening in an abortion is not just loving the unborn, it's loving the woman. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. women face regret and pain. And it's not to say that every woman's going to face regret. Some people can have multiple abortions. I read one story of one woman who had uh, six to, I think it was close to six or seven abortions, never regretted it, kind of flaunted it, even went in for a last abortion. 
and was just really like, look at me, you know, and everyone in the room is just so uncomfortable because even those who are pro-choice will say it's like, it's a heavy decision. And she was just making real light of it. And then she finally got to see the sonogram and just broke mm. down crying. And it became a reality to her that she was just so cavalier about uh, killing multiple of her children. And it just was devastating, devastating. So until she, until she saw the sonogram, it like wasn't even it wasn't on real. her radar. No, wow. not at all. Wow. And so even though you might not wow. feel like it's a human life, reality is it is. Mm. And you might not come to grips with reality for a long time, but those who understand the reality of the unborn were protecting you from not killing an innocent mm. human being. Mm. Yeah. That's good. That's compassion too. I, I feel like the last thing I really want to make sure we speak to that we haven't spoken to maybe is the woman who's had an abortion. Mm. And, and I'd be surprised if you've lasted that long getting to this point in the podcast. It's talking about <laughs> murder of your baby and walking down that road. That's challenging. And that yeah. might bring up some really difficult season for you. I just yeah. want to share with you that there is hope found in Jesus and forgiveness that is beyond even our understanding and that God wants to use your story to bring out other people who are hurting. Do not feel trapped. Do not feel alone. Satan wants to isolate you and make you feel like you're the only one that's ever made this decision and mm. that your church will judge you. Your family will judge you. Sin needs to be brought to the light so it can be dealt with. And that's where you can find that healing and that hope. And also same thing, if you go to CareNet, they have a whole network of post-abortive counseling for women. Mm. And it has been so freeing for so many. There's those in our collective that can also connect to you um, that have walked down those roads too. And we'd love to help you. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I feel like when it comes to the conversations we have about this in the church, I'm even thinking like going back to the youth group room. So often what's mainly preached is sex before marriage is a sin. And I, I stand by that. I, I agree with that. But what I wish I would have said more of as a youth pastor, if I'm just thinking back on it, was saying, hey, yes, we believe sex before marriage is a sin. The reality is some of you guys are going to make that mistake. And when that happens, if a pregnancy happens, I just want you to know, like, we are here for you. We love you. That is a life we want to, we don't want you to have shame. Yes, we should repent of our sins. Yes, we should feel guilty because of our sins, but we don't hold on to that guilt and shame. We give it to Jesus. So like, yeah. we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. If you make that mistake, your life is not over. You're not the worst of the worst. You're not any yeah. worse than Jim over here. Who's a liar or, you know, Tim, Jim or Tim from the office, UK and US. I don't know what, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, like we, we need Jesus, all of Amen. us. And so. Yeah. I, I think that needs to be an important part of the conversation. Yeah. Life is always a gift. Mm. Life is always a gift. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. God is the giver of life. And, you know, there's many times where I could have had that consequence, but it's a consequence that's confusing because the Lord wants us to be fruitful and multiply mm. because of his goodness. All life is still a gift. And it's, yeah. we have an opportunity to let his grace transform the narrative for us. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I, this is like my, my deep, my deep uh, desire in my heart is I look at abortion. I hope it's something sincerely that 20, 30, 50 years from now, we look back on and people in the future look back on it, whether they're on the left or the right. And they think of it the same way they do slavery, because the reality is whether you're left or right or anywhere in between, we all look back on slavery and we go, okay, our ancestors got that wrong. 
like they were dead wrong about that. Like those were not, you know, black people were not, you know, one third of a person. They were a whole person. We, we screwed that up. And so that, that's what I hope is one day something happens where there's, there's a change and we all look back on it and say that was wrong. And I think in order to get there, you're laying out a great path for us, man. It's, it's prayer. Like that needs to be the start of it. There's political engagement and then there's hearts and minds. It's, it's reaching people where they are and giving them the truth and then praying that the Holy Spirit does something with that. So thank, thanks for laying that all out so beautifully, man. You've done a great job. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Ryan, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been super eye-opening and it's been really helpful trying to think through how to be as compassionate and gracious as possible. It's been a blessing to be a part of the podcast finally. Thank you. Yeah, man. It's been awesome. We were a big fan of you. We, we love you. And uh, we'd love to have you back on again sometime cool. soon. So um, really love appreciate it. this. If you want to see more about what Ryan does, you can go to speak, speaklifecollective.org, I believe. Dot, dot com, I believe. Now I'm questioning it. <laughs> speaklifecollective.com. Yes. Yep. So there it is. <laughs> yes. Go there. Look at the answers question. Look at the resources. Look at the blog. Ryan's got some great videos on there. Really, really good stuff. So thanks again for being here, Ryan. We appreciate thanks. you, dude. And we'll, we'll catch you next time, man. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about it on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered encouraging and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.